Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 21 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. Boy, was it great to have live sports on TV this weekend. Soccer was first up on Saturday with the Bundesliga. And Sunday, NBC aired the charity golf event with Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, Ricky Fowler, and Matt Wolf, while Fox was airing NASCAR. All the events were without fans, but it was so good to have them back. My next guest was a member of the U.S. men's national soccer team. He is an Emmy-nominated analyst for Fox Sports, and no one has had a better head of lettuce in the game of soccer than this guy. It's the always entertaining Alexi Lalas. Alexi, how are you? I'm good. What? That's a hell of an introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> You've earned it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I know we're all going through a tough time here, and you have your State of the Union podcast. What else have you been up to? Well, you know, over at Fox, uh, we have had to adjust and pivot like everybody else and muddle through this. Um, you know, when when your uh, lifeblood is live sports and live sports go away, uh, you get you get creative real quickly. You throw mm-hmm. as much against the wall as you possibly can. So we uh, we have a, a, a weekly soccer magazine show in the form of indoor soccer. You mentioned the podcast. We have Bundesliga coming back, uh, which should be interesting, not just from a, a soccer or a uh, – a Fox perspective, but I think just from a, a, a sports and cultural perspective to see what that looks like. The first, you know, let's say major mm-hmm. league out there to actually come back and play and what, what it looks like in terms of the broadcast, what are the protocols, how does it go, fingers crossed, all that, and mm-hmm. you know, possibly other leagues looking at it to uh, uh, to have some sort of pathway back to uh, back to playing. But look, I, I don't I don't know a whole lot. Uh, not a lot of people know a whole lot because this is uncharted territory for all of us right now. Well, you grew up in Birmingham, Michigan. What was life like there? Uh, my mother uh, is a writer, and my dad was a professor and worked for the Greek government. So we went back and forth between, like you said, uh, Birmingham, which is a suburb of Detroit, uh, and Athens, Greece. And so uh, it was spent half and half when I was young, and then full-time eventually in uh, in Michigan. And it was a typical suburban type of Midwestern existence with uh, MTV and Bubble Yum and mm-hmm. Slurpees and hockey and soccer and, uh, you know, a, the, the, the radio and uh, that kind of stuff, cassettes and, <laughs> and that type of existence growing up in the 70s and 80s uh, in the United States. And my, my life was filled with uh, with school, with music, uh, and with sports, and that's what I focused on. And you talk about sports. Was soccer always a love for you? Was it pretty equal between it, soccer and hockey? It, it was um, in that I was introduced to it in what nowadays is is something of uh, of a unique aspect that's kind of gone away, not just from soccer, for, but from sports, in that growing up in Athens as a young age, I was forced out of the house to go and do whatever and then be back a few hours later and I would go down to that proverbial um, corner lot and play pickup soccer with the Greek kids. Now that doesn't exist anymore. It did for many years in the United States, especially relative to baseball and football and that, but mm-hmm. even that's gone away for those sports. So that's where I really started and picked up soccer and found a love and passion for it. But then coming back to Michigan where it's the law that you got to play hockey, <laughs> I actually ended up playing a whole lot more hockey at times than I was playing soccer. And just when, when it got warm, I would go out and play hockey, but or uh, soccer, but yeah, I played a lot of hockey growing up. I still play hockey. I love it. It, it's, uh, it's one of the loves of my life. You still play ice hockey? Yeah. Or, yeah, wow, good for you. Awesome. Where, and what position did you play in hockey? 
I was an off winger, uh, mm-hmm. which meant that I shot right, but I would play on the left wing and uh, do that kind of stuff. And I played all through high, all through high school. Uh, I actually played at college when I went out to uh, Rutgers. So it was, uh, you know, just a, a huge part of my life. And, you know, the Red Wings were, were diehard Red Wings fans and Hockey Town and all that kind of stuff. So my, my Saturday nights growing up, were scheduled around Hockey Night in Canada because obviously being in Detroit, we would get mm-hmm. CBC and we would get that broadcast. And so my Saturday nights were get my root beer, get my potato chips, get a towel because <laughs> you need a towel when you watch hockey, evidently, and then watch <laughs> Hockey Night in Canada. And be, and a lot of times it was the Toronto Maple Leafs and so the Boreas Salming types of things and the Daryl Sittlers. And, you know, I don't throw names out a long time ago, right. but that that was my that was my Saturday existence. That was my entertainment. I was just completely immersed in the hockey culture and scene. That was, that's awesome. And was there, was there a player that you followed that you loved? Was it? Yeah. I mean, look, Stevie Y for, Uh for, for those of us that grew up in that time, not just what he meant individually and what he did, but what he meant to the the city and and obviously to the Red Wings. And I, it's interesting because I, my, uh, I have an 11 year old, uh, uh, boy, and when he was really young, I had to you know make sure you, you you raise him well, and so I got him into the Red Wings at a very young age. Mm. And at one point, when he was when he was older, he he came to me and said, "Dad, listen, um, can I can I root for a different team?" And <laughs> I, I couldn't fathom how that could possibly happen. And then and then it, it occurred to me that his entire exposure to the Red Wings was when the Red Wings weren't good. So I had a completely different frame of reference when I'm talking about the Red Wings. And for a kid, you want to be, you want to back a winner. And he had never seen them win. And so, I mean, to his credit, he immediately turned to Vegas when they had that incredible run. And I said, hey, listen, buddy, it's not always going to be like that, but well done, at least on your first time around. And then, you know, did your ability to play soccer and ice hockey – you know, bring you east to Rutgers. Was that the, was that, is that what kind of did it for you to be able to play both in college? Well, it was mostly soccer and I was, I was not recruited, even though I was the, the Michigan soccer player of the year, it was back in a different time. And, and there, there was, Michigan certainly wasn't a soccer hotbed and I was getting rejected at a lot of the schools that I was playing to. I knew I wanted to play division one college soccer and I got rejected at a lot of the places that I applied to And Rutgers was on the bottom of the pile of possibilities. And my father called the coach and the coach said, well, look, I don't know much about you. Um, can I, can I meet you? And we got in the car and we drove the 16 hours out to, uh, out to New Jersey, exit nine off the turnpike. Mm-hmm. Never forget it. And we met with the coach for a couple of hours and he said, look, I can invite you to preseason and I can get you into the agriculture school. Now I grew up in Michigan, but I sure as hell didn't grow up on a farm, but it was the best thing <laughs> available. It was the only thing I had going. And I said, fine. And I came back uh, for preseason that fall. And it was everything wrong in terms of picking a school. I did no research. I had never been to Rutgers, let alone to New Jersey. Um, and uh, I got dropped into this Rutgers as the state school of New Jersey and you know, 30,000 people. I didn't speak for the first two months that I was there. I scared the crap out of everyone. <laughs> and uh, it worked out from a soccer perspective and, and from a, a cultural uh, perspective. I, I learned a lot and it forced me into a, a really unfamiliar type of situation but sometimes you need that in order to push yourself along and, and then you adjust, uh, adjust and adapt and you were a three-time all-american you guys were number one in the country too you kind of put yep. Rutgers yeah, soccer so on the soccer map wise it was great i mean they were going through kind of a rebuild and so timing is, is important in life and so i came in and i was able to play right away and then we had success and i was then seen on a national stage 
which which continued to lead to, to bigger and better things, including Olympics uh, from there. In 1988, it was announced that the 94 World Cup will be hosted by the United States. Did you kind of put that on your radar at the time to say kind I of I want to think about? It. Yeah, I mean, I, I did not think about you know, I grew up in a, in a very academic household in that my father was um, a professor and my mom was a writer. And it, it, in, in, no, in no part or recess of their brain did they ever fathom or dream uh, or hope for their firstborn to be a professional <laughs> athlete. Um, it doesn't mean they weren't supportive of, of my sports. They recognized that I was good at it and that it kept me out of trouble. But that's not something that they could relate to. And even growing up at that time, I didn't have aspirations because that's not something that we really we did. I mean, people on my wall were Steve Eiserman and like Joe Elliott from Def Leppard and <laughs> these types of these types of heroes. I didn't have soccer players. So when you know when the whole soccer thing came about, I didn't even know probably when it was awarded, when the 94 World Cup was awarded. And I did go to the 90, 1990 World Cup, which was in Italy, and the U.S. played in that. I bummed around Europe with some friends of mine. We actually got tickets for a game, but it, it didn't even occur to me, or the possibility didn't exist even at that time back in 1990, yeah. that four years later I would be on the field playing for the U.S. Oh. And then just speaking to your education I guess that's kind of why you went back later on and finished your degree online. Yeah. So I left in the fall of 90, 91 to train full time for the Olympics, which occurred in the, in the summer of 92, the Barcelona Olympics. So I didn't you know, drop out of school to follow the debt or anything, but <laughs> I did drop out of school. And I ended up being on the 24-year uh, plan, basically, and ended up graduating in 2014. So I guess, well, I guess it's, that's the 26-year plan. Uh, I ended up graduating in the, in the summer of 2014. I went back, and it was, it was the most difficult thing, but the most rewarding thing that I've, uh, that I've ever done. So I showed up in the fall of 1988, exit nine, uh, to Rutgers, and I graduated in the summer of 2014. <laughs> Uh, you were online learning, so I'm sure uh, that's helping oh, your yeah. kids at this point during this time. And then going back to 1994, it's your first World Cup match against Switzerland, and the game is being played in your backyard at the Pontiac Silverdome. Go back to that moment. What, what were your emotions? How did you keep them in check? It's nuts because, and you have to understand what the what the Silverdome kind of means to people. And I was I was on a, uh, a Zoom call a couple of nights ago because over at Fox we're broadcasting WrestleMania three, mm. and uh, it was it, it was amazing to see the, the 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 folks that were on this call talk about their memories of what WrestleMania was, and you know at the time. The Silverdome was so important to us, it, and it's amazing that it, it has come and gone and had its life uh, expectancy snuffed out, and then it was <laughs> and then it was done and a relic of the past, a, really a, a monument. Um, you, you would see concerts there. I went and watched the Lions there. I went and watched uh, even the Pistons there. They played there uh, for a portion of the time where they would drape off half of the Silverdome, mm -hmm. and to be able to come full circle. 10, 20 minutes outside of where I grew up to play in a World Cup and to play the first World Cup. And by the way, the only, to this day, only uh, indoor, on-grass World Cup game that's ever been played and have right. Michigan State be such a huge part of the uh, of that grass that was put in there in terms of the design. It was just, it, it, was, it couldn't have been, you know, a... a a more enjoyable and joyous type of celebration to be in front of family and friends a couple of uh, you know a couple of miles away from where I grew up 
Do you remember how many people you had there as guests? Oh my God. It's just, I had a huge, huge contingent of, you know, buddies from, uh, from high school growing up and then their parents and then the soccer people and then the hockey people. And the, you know, I grew up playing in, in garage bands. And so anybody and everybody, <laughs> I, 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 I would, I would walk out on the stadium. I'm walking out onto the stadium for the national anthem and looking up in the stands and I could actually pick out different people and know people. That is <laughs> awesome. And there's, where was what? 80,000 people. Right. There oh. So it was nuts. And on home soil, the U.S. team makes the round of 16 for the first time since 1930. At the time, did you guys kind of realize how big of a moment that was? Well, so what people don't sometimes don't realize is that for that 94 World Cup, we actually trained in Southern California. We had a residency program for two years, basically leading up to it. And that's what was was so important in terms of our development. When I stepped on the field in 1994, I had never been on the books of a club. Hmm. Um, and that's a really backwards way to kind of, uh, kind of do it. Usually in the soccer world, you, you come up in a club system, you play for the first team in the club, you get noticed by the national team, you go to the national team, and it goes, it goes like that. It's just why when you look at players like myself and Kobe Jones, we have a ridiculous amount of caps because that's all we did for two years. But we needed that residency program in Southern California to, to get ready because we didn't have the experience uh, of the other teams. And so, you know, when, when we stepped on that field, um, you know, we, we, we had an experience and understanding when it came to the, to the, inter, to the international game. And our goal was to get out of the group because we didn't want to embarrass ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, this was an opportunity. This was a platform to show not just the world, but to be quite honest, to show our country how far we had come. And we didn't want to waste that. I, I, I tell the story all the time. Two weeks before the world cup, I got on a plane got in my economy seat, got in my center uh, middle seat there. Mm-hmm. I sat down next to a nice older woman and we struck up a conversation. She said, what do you do? I said, well, I play soccer. She said, well, what do you, what do you do? Uh, you know, what's your job? I said, well, it's, I play soccer. She said, what do you do for money? <laughs> and I said, I play soccer. And two weeks later, I'm in front of a billion people in the, in the world cup. That's only to show how, different and and how wild west the soccer world was back then and for a lot of people it was their first exposure to what soccer could be mm-hmm. and that's why mls came a few years later it was it was just a great opportunity for us to grab a hold and bring so many people into the soccer tent and a lot of them stayed right and there was a lot of i'm sure there's a lot of pressure being the host team i mean did, did you take the time to enjoy it yeah i think we did and it and, and almost it almost because we had fulfilled that goal, I look back on it and there's, there's a sense, there's a part of me that says we, we, we should have expected it more. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and in, in that, I don't look, we ended up losing to Brazil, the eventual winners where right. there's no shame in that, but maybe if we had had an attitude where we, we, we hadn't already, we didn't look at things as this is just the cherry on top after you're out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, so, but, but it was, it was so important because that was what was equated with success and, and once again, not embarrassing yourself. And that was, that was a lot of our, of our challenge and goal was don't embarrass yourself as, as the home team hosting the world cup that was going great, wonderful crowds and just incredible color and, and, it was, and obviously it made ridiculous amounts of money, uh, so it was incredibly successful, but you wanted that component where the home team 
where Americans had something to cheer for. And we had that moment where you could put the flag around and that game against Colombia and, and even the game against uh, Brazil that we ended up losing. There was an honor, I think, that we all felt after that we had done our country right and done our sport right. And then following the 94 Cup, you become the first American to play in Italy's top division, the Serie A with Club Padova. What did you learn from that experience? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. It was great. Uh, it was such an incredible couple of years. I learned so much on the field because at that point, the Serie A, which is the league in, in Italy, that was the be-all and end-all. That's where all the, play, the, the players had gone. It was before some different rulings came out in terms of that changed the migration of, of, of players, uh, especially to England. So that was where all the players, the best players were, the best teams were, the most money, the most prestige. And to be an American and dropped into that. It was an incredible honor, but it was also a, a wild ride and experience to get thrown into that fishbowl that is soccer over there. And, and once again, I had never been on the books of anything. So this is my first experience playing at a club. So that's week in and week out, living there. You have to adjust not only as a soccer player, but also as a person. So it's a new language. It's a new culture. Um, you know, the, the way that, that I am and the, certainly the way that I was was something that was very different than the <laughs> Italians had seen. The way that I looked, the way that I acted, the things that I said, you know, the, 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 whether, whether it was the optics, uh, you know, of the hair or, or that free-flowing uh, type of personality or the music or anything of that, it was very different than they had seen. So I had to navigate through some, some interesting waters as we went along. But just, just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Did they accept you right away or was there a feeling well, out well, Interesting. Yeah, the interesting thing is that when it came to American players, um, there was a long history of players coming over with no respect or acknowledgement at all. And what, what the World Cup did would, was give me and buy me some time in that I had been seen by the world and obviously been seen by, the, by Italy doing well at what they considered a legitimate level. And so it gave me a little bit of cachet coming in. Now, it didn't last long. You know, it's Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? Right. So I had to come in and prove myself. But it was a little bit of a cushion. That that really, really helped. Um, but then you got to, you know, you got to do, you got to do the job on the field. And then, like you said, feeding off the 94 World Cup, Major League Soccer started up in 1996. The league essentially took all the high-profile players, split them among the teams. You were put on the New England Revolution. How did that process work, and did you have any say in where you went? So, for years, we had talked about uh, a league of our own and, mm -hmm. and how great it would be. And so, I think there was a general recognition and responsibility and acceptance that if this was if this was going to happen, we needed to be a part of it. And there was a, a, a practical side, a business side that hey, we want the players that we saw star in the World Cup in '94 as part of this when we kick this we kick this off. Now. Some of us had more leverage than others. Obviously, I was coming back from Italy, um, and I was a high-profile player. Uh, and I said, I said I wanted to play in Boston. We had a wonderful, uh, wonderful times in Boston uh, it, it, with the national team, and so I had always had a great time. Uh, I loved the city. I loved, you know, <laughs> the Guinness and the bars <laughs> and the bars. You know, that was just that was it was just it just seemed like a really really cool city, and so I really wanted to go there. And luckily, the crafts. Um, who own the uh, New England Revolution, and obviously own the uh, the Patriots, that are such you know huge, huge pillars of that uh, of that of that area. Uh, they they wanted to have me, and so I went there and played for the Revolution for a few years, and it was great. I mean, one of the proudest moments of my life was getting on that plane and coming back because it was that it was that league of our own. But it, it was also 
it was La Cosa Nostra. It was our thing, warts and warts and all. It wasn't it wasn't perfect, but there's there's very few times in life where you get to be part of something from the beginning. And to be able to say that I was part of MLS, which now 25 years later is is going strong and is going to going to last not just not just last well beyond my career, but it's last it's going to last well beyond my lifetime. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and then you end up playing four seasons in the MLS, but you retired in '99. What went into this decision to step away, and kind of what prompted you to return? So all of the different opportunities that came to me, especially after 1994, I milked it for all it was worth. I had a blast uh, on and off the field for a number of years, um, and I burned it really, really hard at both ends. <laughs> and I got to a point in 2000 where I, I knew I needed a, a break. Um, and not, most athletes don't, don't do that. And, uh, I just knew that I was going to be no good to anyone if I didn't have a break. And mm-hmm. a lot of times in, in some of these stories, it wasn't, we didn't, we didn't frame it as a, a retirement. I think we called it a stepping away. <laughs> so it really what it amounts to is a sabbatical. Right. Um, Leave that door and open. what I did is I drove across the country and as is often the case in these, there's a girl involved and that, that, that girl ended up being my wife. And so I chased her across the country. Mm. Um, I, I got my my life in some semblance of of order, and then you know started to miss playing. And I was still at that point thirty years old, so I still had a few years left in me. Uh, and um, at that point, I was living in uh, in Los Angeles and said, "Hey, I I feel that itch. I want to I want to play again." And then eventually, you step away. And you know, doing this podcast, I spoke speak to a lot of guys who play professional hockey or whatnot. And, you know, you ask them if they've thought about life after. Did you always think about life after the game? Or was that kind of, I'll figure it out when I get there? I think soccer players, for the most part, especially my generation, always did because we did, never knew. I mean, our, our soccer past in the U.S. is littered with clubs and leagues uh, that are defunct and, mm-hmm. and folded. So we never knew how long it was going to last. And, uh, you know, I, so I did think about it. And I, sometimes I get young players that'll come up and, and ask for advice, uh, like I, like I have any, but, but the one, the advice that I do have is, you know, your career is never going to end the way you want it. And if it does count yourself as one of the very, very few, uh, you can script it out and write, this is how it's going to end. You're going to ride off in the sunset. No, it's not going to happen like that. Um, so you better be aware of opportunities that come along and you better you know, think really hard if there's an opportunity to see a jumping off point that is going to enable you to continue your life. Because look, you can play until you until you drop, but those opportunities might not come on your schedule. Hmm. And so I was I was really aware of when those opportunities came along. And so in 2003, I finished the season and I walked into the door as a lot of athletes do and into an office and they said, uh, we're not bringing you back next year. I said, all right, well, it was about money. It has nothing to do with money. It's just the way it is. All right, fine. So then I could have gone and, and tried to play a few more years and different things, but I got given an opportunity and they said, Hey, we have a position in the front office up in San Jose. And I could have said, thank you, but I'm, I'm just not done playing and I could have continued on. But, mm-hmm. but guess what? That opportunity might have gone away and wouldn't, might not have been there when I decided that I wanted to walk away. And so I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but at least I understood in that moment that that was a jumping off point that could introduce me and put me in a position for other opportunities that are going to last well beyond my career and, not are, going, and are not going to be dependent on my physical abilities. And so I took that and off I went into the front office for a number of years. Is that something you kind of, did you ever envision yourself in the managerial side of that? I, I, I thought about the business yeah. uh, a lot. 
I thought about how not just the business of soccer, but but the business of sports runs, and I thought about an existence in the business in the in the, in the business world, and um, you know, it, despite the way I acted and, and looked and everything, I, I am much more pragmatic and business-like in my approach to a lot of different things and the way that I think about it. I learned, I mean, but keep in mind, I was still 33 at that point. Obviously, I'd never had any front office experience or let alone just actual office and business experience. Mm -hmm. And I was thrown into the position, wonderful position of president of the San Jose Earthquakes. And um, I had to, I had to make it up. I had to surround myself with as many good people and take as much good advice as I can. I've made plenty of mistakes along the way, but I don't regret it for a second because it exposed me to a side of the game that is so crucial and important and it's fascinating. And I got a much greater appreciation for the game that I thought I knew and that I loved, but my love for it grew with a better understanding, um, of the realities of the situation mm -hmm. and of the actual business and the men and women that work each and every day and the structure of the business and the history of the business and the strategy of the business. Um, I just learned a tremendous amount. It was a real crash course in the three different teams that I went to. I read someone say, cause you spent two years with the quakes and then you came to New York, play with, uh, with the Metro stars in the same role. And somebody said they needed Alexi Lalas in New York to grow the game there. Did you kind of, feel that too when you came over is that why you made the move i mean i was as as a front office person i was very different because i was you know the first high profile player to be in that position and, and as i said you know I, I made mistakes along the way uh, as i was learning on the on the fly and i went to three very different and distinct challenges so we went to san jose and san jose was in the midst of relocating they ended up going to houston and so there's a whole host of challenges and problems that you have to deal with especially from a managerial perspective for a front office like that then i went to new york which at that time was called the metro stars and that was in the process of being sold to the red uh, to red bull and so that's a whole different but equally as challenging type of situation to deal with from a managerial managerial perspective and then i came back to los angeles with the galaxy and the whole Beckham thing happened, and that's a whole other hurricane and a very, very different and unique challenge in and of itself. So all different places had unique challenges, and I learned each and every place that I went. Did you have a relationship with Beckham, or was it, or are you trying to make a splash and promote the game, or what kind of went in that, into that decision? Yeah, so Phil Anschutz has been a, a proponent and a champion of Major League Soccer since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And AEG, uh, the Anschutz Entertainment Group, has owned multiple, multiple teams over the years. And that's why I was given this opportunity, because at the time I was playing for Los Angeles, uh, they also owned San Jose and they also owned the Metro Stars. And so they were positioning me around these different places to get me experience and then bringing me back to the Los Angeles Galaxy. We, as the Galaxy and as the Anschutz Entertainment Group, had had a relationship with David Beckham for a number of years when it came to camps. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we needed to do something big and bold and to create, if you will, the first MLS Super Club, the, the club that everybody thinks about first when they think about Major League Soccer or when they think about soccer in the United States, the club that as many people hate as love. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you gotta you got to think outside the box. You have to do something big and bold. And there's only one David Beckham and talk about getting people into the tent and transcending the sport. And look, we paid for it. We paid a lot of money for <laughs> it, but it was worth every single penny. And, but it also, it also brought a host of challenges and the, the hurricane that is 
the brand of Beckham was something the likes of which not just the league, but the galaxy had never dealt with before. And there were a lot of, you know, there's a lot of collateral damage along the way and including firings, firings of coaches, firings of myself ultimately. Mm -hmm. But, but, but in a strange way, it's what the galaxy needed to go through to become that big club. And so even in, even in the difficult times and even, even getting fired, I can appreciate what it went, what we all went through and what the galaxy went through. Hmm. 2006, you're inducted into the national soccer hall of fame. What did that mean to you? I mean, so the hall of fame from a soccer perspective didn't register growing up, but Mm -hmm. a hall of fame, whether Mm -hmm. it was the music hall of fame or the hall of fames that existed for the other sports, you you knew that that was something big. And so I know that I'm, that I'm not the best American soccer player ever to play the game, but I knew what I was good at and I knew what I, uh, what I wasn't uh, good at. And as I said, I, I milked every opportunity and I've always, I've always considered myself an entertainer and a performer. And sometimes when you say that uh, people cringe because somehow they think that you're then not genuine or honest or authentic. And that couldn't be further from the, from the case. Um, I just recognize that I like performing in front of people. I love rehearsing, which is which is basically um, practice or, or training or anything like that. I like going on stage, which is basically a field mm-hmm. uh, or uh, or in front of a camera. Um, and I like the the response that you get. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, but I want people to be provoked. I want people to respond. And I, I that's how I approached my my career. And so there was a costume that I wore. Um, uh, but, but, but at its core, you still, it has to be something that you're comfortable with and at its core, it has to be something that you are and that it always was that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so while it was at times manufactured and I, and I know that's not a great word to use, it was because this was what I was comfortable with in terms of my performance out there and in the perform uh, and in the personality and the persona that I was putting out there. And I think that was just a recognition of the impact that it had made. And it, it, look, it makes you feel great. It makes you mm-hmm. feel validated. Do, do you, do you need it? No, but it doesn't hurt. And that's a, it's a good, it's a good thing. And it, and it feels good when people tell you uh, that, uh, that they want to honor you. And is that, that personality is kind of, is, is that kind of what led to your success in the broadcasting world as well? Yeah. I mean, when I, when I got fired in 2008 and I started immediately at that point with, uh, with ESPN, um, you know, I fell in love. I fell in love with, with broadcasting and, and with television and with with live sports and and the whole culture around it and you know, I still got a long way to go and I still make mistakes and I still can improve but I like to think I've I've gotten better over time and it's, it's people ask me do you ever get nervous and I say yeah every single time or, or else I don't feel I'm ready when that light turns on the potential for all sorts of stuff to happen <laughs> exists and I I love that but I've I've harnessed that that nervousness and that energy um, and, and channeled it in a way where I don't feel right. If I don't feel that that little, uh, that, that, that nerve and, and I love it and and it's, it's addicting. And, you know, as, as you know, we go through, you know, in our industry, you can find so many people that are just kind of passing through and and using it as a way station until something better comes along. Mm -hmm. Because people ask me, would you want, you want to go back to the front office? You want to go coach? I said, no, I love what I do. They can pry it from my cold, dead hands. And look, there's those people that are passing through or, or kind of using it as a way station. You can get away with that for a little bit, but I think ultimately it will manifest itself in your performance. And I think you're doing not just yourself, but 
the viewer a disservice. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to cheat the viewer. I don't want to cheat myself. I want to be surrounded by people that are equally as passionate and are junkies for it and want to do it. And I don't want to do anything else. You know, I recently interviewed Brian Leach and he talked about being back into that team atmosphere of the broadcasting, which he enjoyed. Do you, do you yeah. get a sense of that too? It's hard because you get asked all the time, can you, can you ever replace the, the juice, I guess, that you feel as a professional athlete? And they say, no, absolutely not, because it's such a unique type of juice. But what you can do is you can find other juices that not only will excite you as much, but might even excite you more. And I'm really, really fortunate, and I, I, rec- I pinch myself every day how privileged and fortunate I am to be able to still be making a living in soccer, even though I haven't kicked the ball for a long time, <laughs> uh, and, to, and to be on television. There's a lot of people that would trade places with me in a second. So uh, you got to bring it. you got to work. you got to do all of the stuff that, that makes anybody good at anything uh, that they do. But the camaraderie um, and the, the teamwork, if you will, is very different than a locker room. I know a lot of people say, well, just, you know, it's just basically a continuation of what happens in a locker room. That's not true at all. If you, if you act in, in regular <laughs> life or in corporate life or something like that, the way you act in a locker room, uh, not only will you get fired, you might even get arrested at times. <laughs> uh, so you, you gotta be, you, you have to, you have to evolve and you have to change. And so the teamwork aspect of it that, that you're referring to absolutely is something that, that I love, but it's a very different type of dynamic and team. But, but, but like I said, just as powerful and, and one that I love just as much. And at times, if I'm honest with myself, maybe even more. Hmm. And do you feel more comfortable in the studio or in the booth? Uh, I feel more comfortable in the studio. I think that's where, that's where I made my bones. It's where, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the ability to to edit or to edit in real time and to be efficient with the words, especially given the limited amount of time that you have is a real challenge that I, that I love uh, to recognize that you know, how you say something is as, is as important as what you say. You know, the, the visual aspect of the studio is something that I like, uh, you know, whether it's the, um, you know, the, the body, uh, mm-hmm. the gesticulation, uh, the cock of a head, um, the, the tone of your voice, all of that different stuff. You know, I love the performance part of the uh, of the studio. I've done plenty of games, and I love uh, I love calling games. But it's also a very different performance calling a game uh, relative to studio work. 2018 become the first soccer commentator to be nominated for a national Emmy. I mean, do you does that mean anything to you? Do you do you look at that and say, wow, that's impressive and special for you? I had no idea until until it happened that even, that was even a possibility. <laughs> so yeah, I, I showed up at the Emmys, and there's all these incredible greats from uh, from the broadcasting world. And look, I, I I have been really fortunate. You know, as soccer has become more popular, a lot of people. You know, when I was at ESPN, you know, working with uh, the great Bob Lee and Mike Tirico and Chris Fowler and those types of uh, of folks. Uh, you know, at, at ESPN, and then transitioning to uh, to Fox, which has just been wonderful with all the great soccer people, but all all the sports people that have over there. I mean, to to have people know who you are especially as a soccer player in, in the broadcast world is, is pretty, is pretty weird. And so, uh, and wonderful, uh, that there is that type of, uh, of respect. Um, and, you know, hopefully at some point I can, I can win one. That's the, the next frontier, but you know, I, I've always liked to consider all of us in the, in the soccer world, especially from my generation as ambassadors and pioneers and, and doing all that kind of stuff and, and spreading the gospel. So if it, if it brings more attention to the sport that I love, 
that's uh, that's cool. So I don't know how you actually win one of those things, but uh, <laughs> at, at some point maybe I'll say something that, that resonates enough. <laughs> Give me one. <laughs> and, you know, you're pretty vocal about U.S. soccer and the state of U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer. And, uh, I mean, where do you see U.S. soccer right now? It, well, U.S. soccer right now, in general, yeah. uh, I think we, we kick ourselves for what we aren't or haven't done. And that's just kind of our nature. But I also think that some perspective is in order. If you look at the the evolution and the growth of the game, both on and off the field, uh, relative to any other country uh, or culture, it's pretty phenomenal how far we've come just in, say, the last 25 uh, 25 years. Uh, Having said that, we're always... Like I said, uh, we're, we're incredibly insecure, and we have an inferiority complex when, when, when it comes to our uh, when it comes to our soccer. But um, you know, when it comes to, for example, the men's team right now, I mean, it's it's it, I don't think it's been at a lower point, and that's completely relative to not making the World Cup. The, the men's team makes the World Cup back in 2018, and there's so many things that go differently. It, it was a cascading type of effect of not making it that infected so many different things. The you know the political nature of the United States Soccer Federation and the president leaving and that type of stuff. Um, even you know the, the women's World Cup, uh, the women's uh, national team, and you know their uh, you know their legal dealings. All of that kind of stuff. Um, kind of kind of the start point is that 2017 now look we we are not perfect we we have plenty of work to do uh when it comes to the united states soccer federation mm-hmm. as as a federation but also just just soccer in what we're doing but i also i remain incredibly bullish about the future um when it comes to when it comes to what we're doing but uh, we're certainly not perfect and you know you mentioned you didn't play for a club team i recently watched documentary soccer town usa about john mm-hmm. hawks and Tom Ram- yeah. ramos and tony miola and they didn't play in club soccer and recently u.s soccer got rid of the development academies and now mls teams are starting their own elite program do you, do you think that's a good pathway any thoughts on that yeah i mean i think what you're looking at is a well first off it's it's a rebrand um it's a realignment uh, if you will um and it's a shift of power from the United States Soccer Federation being involved in elite development of, of youth players to MLS being the top of that type of uh, elite development of youth players pyramid. Um, and I think the United States Soccer Federation is one more, one less thing that they have to worry about. And to be to be honest, it makes sense to have MLS be at that top and kind of dictate and drive what happens for uh, for youth soccer. A void will be filled, and even very, very quickly, that void was filled by MLS's version of what, the, of what, they, are, uh, what they are doing. Um, one thing I know about U.S. soccer and American soccer out there is when there is an opportunity in the form of a void, it will be filled very, very quickly um, mm. to, from a pure business standpoint, if nothing, if nothing else. I actually think that this is going to be much better for the elite type of soccer player. And sometimes we get lost in our world of specialization and uh, bright uh, bright lights and big city type of thinking when it comes to, to athletes. The majority of them, the vast majority of them, will never ever play in World Cups or be professional or, or even necessarily get uh, college scholarships. Um, 
And, but that doesn't mean that soccer can't be a huge part of people's lives and can't be really, really important if we organize it correctly and we have the proper leadership out there when it comes to, uh, to youth soccer. And you mentioned the U.S. women's national team and their legal issues. And you made a point, which I, I admit I never thought of, but you made a point on, on one of your podcasts that, you know, if the equal pay comes, right, how does that affect grassroots? Do you have to equal pay the Paralympic team, U.S. beach or futsal teams? Uh, is, is there any solution that you could see? I mean, this is about money yeah. uh, when it really comes down to it. And this gets solved with money. And there, there will be a, a new deal. And, you know, I have, a, I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody that feels that they are wronged. And in this case, uh, the women felt that the contract that they signed was, was unlawful. And you should fight for what you believe in. If you feel that you have been, uh, you have been wrong, it doesn't mean you're always, always going to win. And certainly what the United States Women's National Team has done, not just for women's soccer, but for soccer in the United States, is un- you can't even question how important and vital uh, and, and vital they they have been. But where do you go from here? Because I think there's I think there's a lot of a lot of folks out there, not just soccer people, but it, it gets it gets old to be quite honest with you, and it and it gets it, it gets exhausting to constantly be fighting and. Um, and that they're able to continue the incredible success that they have is a tribute to the individuals that they have and, and the fortitude that they have and the, and the talent that they have and the team concept that they have of fighting together for, uh, for so long. And you have to, you know, you have to respect, you have to respect that. But when it comes to you know, what is, what is equal, um, if it's about representing your country, and we have a lot of different national teams out there. And, and I just, I'll be really interested to see. I don't have the answers to all of, all of this kind of stuff. You know, I do think that a deal gets done, and I, and I hope a deal gets done. And I hope that the, the women are happy, and I hope that they are valued and respected through that deal. And that we can kind of get back to other stuff that is as, and in many cases, more important in terms of developing and driving the sport forward. Because, you know, despite my bullish outlook, mm-hmm. we still got a lot of work to do. Having done all this through your career, do you ever pause and reflect on the career you've had with soccer? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm turning 50 this year, which which is crazy because I don't feel 50. Um, you don't look 50. I'm trying, man. I, it's, it's all makeup and lighting, you know how TV works. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't, yeah, I don't reflect on it because I feel like I got a whole lot more to do, and I hope, hopefully, I'm, I'm allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they get younger and younger every every year, and they're all coming for my uh, for my job. But in some capacity or another, I, I like to think that I got many years uh, ahead to influence, and you know, who knows, maybe even. Uh, poke <laughs> as we go forward uh, because it's something that, that I like to do and but you know it comes from a place of of love and like I said passion for the game and in particular the game in, in the country that I love and the country that I feel is the greatest country in the world so well I agree with you that what you said earlier genuine honest and authentic Alexi I appreciate you taking your time and thoughts and it was uh, great chatting with you no problem I mean it's uh, it's it's an absolute pleasure to talk about the most important thing in my life which is me uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm much more of a dork uh, if, if you have any type of impression after this that I'm anything but uh, I'm 
I'm pretty much uh, a dork, as my kids will attest to. <laughs> and I, I certainly don't have all the answers, and I make plenty of mistakes and continue to make plenty of mistakes along the way. But we're all we're all muddling through this life together, and certainly in these interesting times, we we definitely are uh, doing it together. And so hopefully we come out the other side healthier and stronger, and, and uh, whatever our new normal is, hopefully it has sports. And from my perspective, hopefully it has uh, soccer in one form or another. Absolutely. Here's to that. Well, I appreciate your time, Alexi. Take care. No problem. No problem. The thing I always take from Alexi, whether it was this interview or watching him on TV, is his passion and pride for U.S. soccer. I'm just as excited for the future as he is. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mike Check on Sports. Take care. Brush your hair.